Let me begin by asking you a question. I don't expect you all to shout out your answers, but just rhetorically in your mind, how are you doing? Really, how are you doing with the pressures of life, with the various stresses that you're carrying? I know some of you are facing major challenges, you have uncertainties, demands on your time. Would you say that you are thriving or perhaps just surviving? The beginning of this year is a good time to have a look at how we're doing and with the various things that we're trying to juggle, you know, what is taking our energy? What is taking our time? What are, what are we focusing on? And over the last couple of years, I've been learning a lot about myself. Uh, I've been putting things in place in my life, in my diary, which have been hugely helpful to me as I've taken on greater levels of responsibility with the national role that Debbie and I do, as well as the local one. And I'm assuming that with me, you want to thrive rather than just to get through. Jesus came to give us life, he gave us, to give us life to the full, but there are a million things, aren't there, which can threaten to rob us of the potential uh, of that experience. Um, but there are things that we can pay attention to which can help free us up to live the kind of life that Jesus offers, even through the hard seasons of life. Personally, I want to live a life which has great impact for the kingdom of God. Uh, to use the gifts, the opportunities, the influence that God has entrusted to me to make a positive difference in this world for the glory of God. But like many of you will know full well, life isn't a bed of roses. Or if we go with that analogy, there are times when the thorns on those roses threaten to knock us off course. Three months ago, our senior leadership team spent a couple of days with the leadership teams of 50 other churches at Kingsgate in Peterborough, and my friend Dave Smith, who was hosting that, he gave a talk which so fits with what I want to talk about today that I'm going to borrow some of what he said by way of introduction. One of Dave's great heroes of the faith was a man by the name of George Whitfield, someone God used extraordinarily in the early 18th century really to shape our history, the history of our country and many other countries across what was at that time the British Empire. He was an incredible evangelist. He saw God do amazing things. He would preach to thousands of people at a time for an hour with no PA system and do that a number of times most days. An amazing evangelistic anointing. You know, God, the fire of God moved across these lands and so many people came to faith. But while he was good at stewarding the ministry that God had given him, he wasn't so good at stewarding the various other parts of his life. He paid huge attention to his spiritual health, to his spiritual life, to reading his Bible, spent hours in prayer. But he wasn't so good at paying attention to other things like his marriage. Certainly not his physical well-being. He came from a school of thought which said, if you want to achieve great things for God, you literally burn yourself out for God. And so he would preach for hours, he would ride on horseback for days, he, would, he crossed the Atlantic at least 14 times, not by you know, some comfortable airplane with a movie and a nice meal, but you know, four or five weeks in turbulencies. And he would preach through the day and then into the small hours of the night he would do his correspondence. No surprise then that George Whitfield hit his peak in his mid-twenties. 
He started experiencing ill health pretty much from then on, and he died prematurely before he got to my age. I wonder how much more God might have been able to use him if he'd paid more attention to balancing life and ministry. I'm not naturally much of a reader, but I have avidly read some life-changing books by some of the leaders who I most admire and whose lives have had huge impact for the kingdom of God as they've carried demanding responsibilities. Bill Hybels, Wayne Cordero, Pete Scazzaro, are three of them. And these three men have one thing in common. They all experienced burnout or found themselves in a place of realizing that they just couldn't go on in leadership. And having hit that wall, they then very deliberately put some things in place in their lives to guard against that ever happening again. Things that they wish they'd done beforehand. They wish someone had told them, like I'm going to tell you some this morning, so that they wouldn't have had to go to that horrible place. And through sharing their experiences, I've been learning some important things, some of which I want to share with you today. Before we get to that, I want to look at a guy in the Bible who experienced that sort of thing and draw out the way that the Lord ministered to him. And then to spend the last section of this talk sharing quite personally some of the things which I've been paying attention to in my own life. Elijah is the person I'm referring to, and if you want to read a lot about his life, you'll find 1 Kings 18, fascinating chapter. He's a, a prophet of God, anointed. He saw in his ministry food multiplied. He saw a dead boy raised when he prayed for him to come back to life. He then has this big contest on Mount Carmel between the prophets of Baal, another supposed God against Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he's basically, he says, okay, let's do a test. They chop some bulls up on altars as an offering and they say, okay, call out to Baal and see if he can set fire to this altar. Nothing happens. Uh, he prays and fire comes down from heaven and consumes this thing. So basically, yes, the Lord's God, Baal isn't. Big contest, horrible fight ensues following that. And he's, he runs then ahead of the king's chariot. The power of the Lord came upon him and he ran. I'd imagine he's probably feeling totally pumped. Elation. You know, gives you that adrenaline surge. He runs for a few miles ahead of the king's chariot, and he's absolutely up the top of it. But King Ahab's wife, Jezebel, is after him to kill him. And it gets to him. So in 1 Kings 19, verse 3, it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And then a few verses later, we read these sobering words. Here he is, this great man of God, hugely anointed, really effective in ministry, and he says... I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. And then a few verses later, sorry, no, he's, he's just done. He's had it. He's hit the wall. He just wants out. He's even suicidal at this point. And I want to look at how God lovingly restored him and got him back on his feet again in four areas of his life. Firstly, he comes and addresses Elijah's physical needs. Here's Elijah physically exhausted. He's just hit rock bottom, and the first thing he needs is sleep. And so it says, then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. He wakes up to find an angel 
has been sent by God to cook him a great meal. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Elijah wakes up to the smell of warm, freshly baked bread. Bread, Not just oven-baked bread. This is baked over hot coals in a fire. And that smell might just be the most amazing aroma for a hungry person. Elijah lay down again. And it says, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And then God begins to also, as well as his physical needs, minister to the deeper part of his being, to his spiritual side. He's spiritually exhausted, having had this big contest, and, but he's had a great connection with God for years, but suddenly in this place, he has lost much of his confidence in God anointing and sustaining him. So God calls Elijah on this journey to go to a mountain, and it's not just any mountain. Horeb was the place where God met with Moses at the burning bush. It was the mountain where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses was the only person at this point who had been invited there. And he says, Elijah, come with me to Horeb, the mountain of God, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. And there God speaks to him. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I just want you to hear his response. Verse 10, he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. In other words, I've been slogging my guts out in ministry, doing your work. Things are falling apart. I've done my part, but everything is crashing around me, and you don't seem to be sorting things out as you have done in the past. And I love the fact that God allows Elijah the freedom to vent. It's important for us to know that God isn't shocked by what we're really feeling. In his tenderness, God allows Elijah to pour out his heart, and then he speaks to him in verse 11. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord's about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Elijah had experienced God in powerful and dramatic ways, like when fire fell from heaven on Mount Carmel, but God knows that what Elijah needs at this time is something more personal, something more intimate. And he speaks to Elijah in a gentle whisper. Other translations use a still, small voice. There's nothing more spiritually restoring than hearing God speak tenderly to us. 
And then God addresses Elijah's emotional needs. Now, uh, a key area of Elijah being so emotionally depleted is that he's afraid of the threats of the queen who's trying to kill him. This is the last straw. But this is exacerbated by the fact that he has become relationally isolated. We find here in verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Elijah, for whatever reason, had turned away the one companion he had. He's on his own. He has no friends around him. And in his isolation, Elijah says twice, I am the only one left. Now, God gives him a bigger perspective, letting him know that actually he's far from being the only one left. And uh, he says this, I reserve, in verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal. So you're not alone. There's plenty of you left. And he tells him in verse 16, to anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel, Meheloah, to succeed you as prophet. Which he does. And then a few verses later, it says this of Elisha. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. That young man, as well as being Elijah's servant, as well as being his successor, would have been a close companion to him. And then we see how God meets Elijah's vocational needs. The word vocation is linked to our English word for calling. And uh, Elijah knew what he was called to be, a prophet of God, someone who was used at high levels to shape history. But in this horrible place that he's found himself of burnout, he's lost that perspective. He's lost his sense of calling. And so God comes and he effectively says to Elijah, you think you're finished? I haven't finished with you. I want to get you back on your feet with a renewed perspective. I want to anoint you to go on shaping history. And so the Lord said to him, verse 15, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. God recommissions him. He sets him back on course. He reminds him what he's for, what he's uniquely called to do. Bill Hybels, who leads a very large church in Chicago, he came up with the idea that it's helpful to imagine that each of us have gauges on our dashboard, like those you'd have in a car. Gauges which tell us whether we're running near empty or whether we're doing well and running near full. And Bill talks about a physical gauge, an emotional gauge, and a spiritual gauge. And he said we do well to check those gauges from time to time and pay attention if one of them is low. So when we sometimes ask the pastors how they're doing and they say, well, probably fine, we find it's helpful for them to think about their answer in these three areas. Because you can be doing fine in a couple of them, but actually there's one the Lord wants to Put his finger on. A book I read recently is called Leading on Empty by Wayne Cordero, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, who almost burnt out. And he realized that there were things he needed to put in place in his life which would help with his recovery and which would help ensure that he never went there again. 
Now, if you feel this morning your gauges, when you stop to think about them, may be really close to the bottom of the tank, it's a book I would recommend to you reading. Over the last couple of years, I've been paying closer attention to my gauges. My tendency is to kind of soldier on, you know, through life's ups and downs and uh, without really taking much notice, honestly, as to how I'm actually doing. And the more I've read and thought about this, the more I see the short-sightedness of that way of living, the more I've taken the time to read about it and think about it and pray about it, how God has designed me. And I'm sharing with you now, I'm going to share quite personally, uh, and in doing so, what I'm not saying, please be clear on this, is that I've got this sorted. All my gauges run constantly right at the top, you know, and all that sort of thing, I've got this sorted. And I will also tell you things which are very personal to me and the way I'm wired, when some of you will think, what? That would be so draining to me if I did that thing. That would be horrible. I just want to be whatever the opposite is. I'm telling you them because amongst the jumble of things which have been helpful to me, my hope is there will be at least one thing in what I'll share which you'll be able to take away today, which you'll, be, you'll find helpful as you consider how you're doing. So as I did with Elijah, I'm going to look at these four areas of life and give you a glimpse into how I'm paying attention to them. Let's first of all look at physical. 30 years ago, uh, the leader of the church I was on the staff of, John Mumford, raised the issue with Debbie and me of rest. We had been married four years at the time, had a wonderful honeymoon, but from that point on, we had hardly taken a day off. We worked six days a week, we had a jewelry shop, and then we were at church, active in ministry on Sundays. And... um, He said, well, there's a thing called a Sabbath. God designed you to work six days, not seven. I require you to take a day off. And we're like, how can I do it? We can hardly fit life into seven. Okay, trust God and fit it into six. And so since then, 30 years on, he said, if anything comes up on your day off, which is ministry and work related, move your day off to another day. And pretty much without exception, we have done that for 30 years. Holidays was another thing with with that because he discovered we never took holidays. Uh, Every holiday we took, we were at a Christian conference for the week, either on a team or attending something. And he said, no, take them. And I read something this week. Apparently, most people in the workplace don't take the annual leave allowance that they are allowed by their employer. If that's you, I would encourage you, take them. You'll be a better worker if you're rested than if you just soldier on and try and continue with your workload. Sleep is an issue. Uh, My tendency is to stay up late and then find I'm chronically tired. I hate alarm clocks. They are the enemy. Even if they go off at 9.30 in the morning, they're the enemy. I'm not a morning person, but I do know that I've got to go to bed at a reasonable time. I aim to be in bed for eight hours. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but I've, I've had to get more disciplined as I've got older in that. What about exercise? In various seasons of my life, I've paid attention to this area, but I've often allowed that to be squeezed out. And I've sometimes thought, no, I'm going to walk to the shops, you know, instead of driving. And then I think, walking to the shops can take me 30 minutes. I could drive it in 10, jump in the car. And uh, someone asked me before uh, the summer, what exercise do you do? And I said, none. Actually, I don't think very little, really. And for years, I have felt that I've been too busy. Life's too busy 
to make time for exercise. And I was really challenged by his question. So six months ago, I bought a boxing heavy bag, which is hung from the ceiling in uh, effectively my garage. And, um, you know, hitting a bag a thousand times is an incredible cardio workout. But it's also the nature of that type of exercise. It reduces anxiety. It reduces stress. It lowers cortisol. Uh, it releases endorphins. And I have for years carried tension in my upper skeleton here, my neck. So sometimes if I'm stressed, I'll be like crunch, crunch, crunch as I'm trying to free up that. I have to sit straight on to people who are speaking so that I don't have to turn my head, you know, for a long time because it will kind of jam there. And my shoulders, some of you will have seen me on the stage doing this, you know. I try not to do it too much, but I've got pain up here all the time. So anyway, the action I've discovered of doing that a lot completely frees that area of my skeleton. And for six months, I have been totally pain-free and tension-free in my shoulders and neck. Praise the Lord. Uh, I got a personal boxing trainer initially to teach me how to hit this bag hard without hurting myself. And uh, he's training me in the skills and arts of box art of boxing, but I never intend to hit anybody or indeed to let anyone hit me. So I'm not actually looking to be a boxer. I simply am enjoying learning a new skill. A couple of weeks ago, Debbie and I joined the local gym, and uh, so far we've been a few times. My hope is that I don't do what most people at the gym seem to do, which is uh, join in January and give up by about middle of February. Eating reasonably healthy uh, without getting fanatical. I, I would just ask you the question, what does paying attention to your physical well-being look like for you? In the spiritual area of my life, I know that I couldn't do what I do or carry the responsibilities that I have without having a vital relationship, a daily walk with God. I would quickly dry up, quickly run out of steam. Now, I confess I've never been very good at a daily quiet time. Partly my being allergic to alarm clocks has contributed. But this time every day, specific time of reading the Bible and praying. And I wish... I was more disciplined in this, and I admire many people who are, but wishing it and even planning it into my diary has not yet resulted in a routine that some of you might be used to. I've always been a little more flexible in my approach to relating to God, seeing it more like a relationship with a close friend than a routinized time each day. And so, as with any relationship, some days I will touch base with God maybe a number of times, but maybe very briefly, while on other days I might spend an hour, even two hours, reading my Bible and praying. A bit like my time with Debbie, it's flexible, it's not confined to a slot each morning. Now that has worked for me thus far. Uh, it's not by any means the best way. I respect enormously those of you who are diligent with a daily time. What I believe is this, that we need all to find a way of engaging with God which keeps that relationship vitally connected. And my way is just one of many, and by no means the best. One thing I've found immensely helpful uh, over the last 18 months has been focusing on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. He was a 16th century monk who had an amazing close walk with God, and he wrote a guide for engaging with Jesus and engaging with the Bible, which now millions of people have found very helpful. Debbie and I have a spiritual director, someone to talk to, his name's Larry, who, who wrote a book, an excellent book, called Journey with Jesus, 
which takes the Ignatian exercises and makes them more accessible. And every few weeks, we have a Skype call with him, and it's really helpful to have someone to reflect with on the journey. One of the things Ignatius wrote about was seeing God in all things and uh, in the hard experiences of life as well as the pleasant things. And when I find myself to resi resistant to what's happening or resistant, even as I'm reading the Bible and engaging deeply in the Scripture, I find myself resistant to that. Well, what do you think this is touching on? What is God doing through this experience? How is he shaping you? to become more like Jesus. Is this experience or this, what you're going through here, taking you closer to God, or is it pushing you away? And I found it helpful to journal throughout this journey, and uh, it's amazing just to read back over time, see how the Lord has changed me, how he has ministered to me, how he's answered my prayers. It's just been extraordinary. Now, Larry is trained in this, he asks insightful questions which have helped me understand how I relate to God, how I do best spiritually. And one thing he encouraged me in is to embrace the way God has wired me in my relationship with him and just go with that. And I've always known that I connect with God best in nature. A book I'll refer to in a minute, Courageous Leadership by Bill Hybels, has a chapter on ways you people connect. I am a naturalist. I come alive when I'm outdoors. And... Um, I've always known that. As soon as I'm in the mountains, if I'm by a lake, I'm by a river, I find myself often spontaneously praying and actually feeling spiritually alive. And um, so when life or work gets on top of me, I've often over the years gone for a walk by the river trend. And I come back feeling centered, closer to God, and ready to face whatever I have on. But... I don't get out into nature often enough. Why? Because I have too much work to do to make the time. So I had a creative idea. I've been considering this for years, but not doing anything about it. I've been imagining it and not putting any feet on it. What about combining work with nature? And I told Larry that I'd often thought about working by the river. And uh, he immediately asked me the challenging question, so what is stopping you? And uh, so immediately I got off the, the Skype call, I went to my computer, I went online, I bought a fold-up lightweight table and chair, and I headed out to what I now refer to as my other office. Here it is. The river is just 10 minutes drive away, and uh, I went a few times until autumn came along and pushed me back indoors, but I'm looking forward to spring. No people, no internet, no emails, just me, the Lord, and whatever I'm working on or reading. One day the weather was so warm I found a shallow area. I put my chair in the river and read a book. And I took this picture on my little remote shooting camera so that I could share this moment with you. I sat in the river for nearly three hours that day. Now, it's not that I have such a leisurely life, I've got time to do this. I didn't do any less work than if I had stayed in my study. But I not only got some uninterrupted time, which was very fruitful, but I felt spiritually alive and fed at the same time. Some of you can't imagine sitting in a river for three hours like, that would be horrible, I just want to be with people or something. But however you find it, you need to feed yourself spiritually. In the emotional area of my life, as with Elijah, let me just begin with relationships. I can't imagine doing ministry alone. I love that God has surrounded Debbie and me with a wonderful team here at Trent and also in the wider movement. And not just colleagues, but real, 
deep, supportive, replenishing relationships with others who are on this journey with us. Friendships need time. And if I get too busy, that is something that can get squeezed. But I found it so important to prioritize that time. Time with Debbie, with my lads and their wives, with friends in the church, with other church leaders around the nation, indeed around the world, and also people who have nothing to do with church, friends who are not Christians, and whose friendships I value whether they ever come to believe what I do or not. Life for all of us can be very demanding emotionally. None of us is immune to experiencing pain, heartache, sadness. Uh, I'm a very calm person, but there are times when things have got on top of me emotionally so much I've, I've not known how to healthily process things which made me angry. And uh, I've been greatly helped by a Christian psychotherapist in America, Tom, who specializes in helping people in stressful occupations like firefighters and police in America and those in pastoral ministry. And Debbie and I have a Skype call with him every few weeks and we process what's going on in our emotional lives. And what's been immensely helpful in enabling me to, he's been immensely helpful, in enabling me to identify themes and hot buttons when I'm reacting to something. What is this, John, tapping into? And uh, self-awareness emotionally. I realize not many people have access to a psychotherapist, but I think it's important to find someone you can be really open with, someone you can be really honest with, someone you can talk about what is going on in your life with, a safe person, someone who you give permission to reflect back to you what they're seeing. Are you handling your emotions well? Are you processing this thing in life well or whatever? Challenging you to grow. Bill Hybels, who came up with the idea of monitoring your gauges, wrote this book, Courageous Leadership, and he writes, I came close to a total emotional meltdown in the early 1990s. I didn't understand the principle of sustainability, so I fried my emotions, I damaged my body, I neglected my family and friends, and I came within a whisker of becoming a ministry statistic. And he realized that while he was doing really well spiritually and physically, he had neglected to pay attention to his emotional health. And he recounts his counselor pointing this out. He didn't have a counselor before he hit the wall, but then he got one. My counselor suggested that I reflect on all the forms of recreation I was involved in and determine which one was the most restorative and why. I said, that doesn't require reflection, that's easy. I don't do anything for recreation. After getting over his shock, my counselor simply said, Bill, you'd better start immediately. You need to schedule life-giving recreation on a regular basis if you intend to stay healthy over the long haul. God made you that way. And as a result, Bill took up the hobby of sailing, and today Bill Hybels continues to be one of the most effective leaders in uh, God's kingdom. When I was younger, I had no time for hobbies. Uh, there was work to be done and all the other stuff and families to raise and responsibilities, but I just didn't think hobbies were very important. I thought they were a bit indulgent, really. But the more I've understood that to thrive in life, 
and to thrive in ministry, I need to pay attention to all areas of my life. I found that hobbies actually enable me to get just really focused and engrossed in something which isn't work or chores or responsibilities. And actually, when I'm working, I am energized to work more effectively. Sometimes I just need to take time out to get emotionally replenished. So for the last 14 years, I've had a motorcycle, and whether I go for a ride for an hour or two every couple of weeks, or whether I take a couple of days, head north to the mountains and so on, a couple of times a year, I know that I come back a nicer person. And uh, Debbie knows that, and she releases me to do that, because she knows I need that somehow in my life, that time out. I tell you, if you've never ridden a motorcycle, it's something else. And even down to the smell. You ride, you know, the rapeseed coming into flower, you smell it, it salts you, you can smell everything. And uh, all your senses come alive when you're riding. I've got a range of interests, which include making jewelry, uh, enjoying and learning about single malt whiskies, restoring antique furniture, watching films with Debbie, and very occasionally doing something involving a racetrack. It's important. A book I read recently, which I would recommend to all of you, is this one. On the screen, it's a different cover, but it's the same one, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And it was challenging to me because I realized as much as I kid myself that I'm pretty emotionally sorted, I realized I have all sorts of dysfunctions going on in this area of my life. Scazzaro writes, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And there's a chapter in here that's quite incisive because it lists some of the symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. For instance, ignoring <clears throat> the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. He says to feel is to be human. Dying to the wrong things. We all know there are things we ought to be dying to, but he says this, we are not called to by God to die to the good parts of who we are. God never asked us to die to the healthy desires and pleasures of life, to friendships, joy, art, music, beauty, recreation, laughter, and nature. He talks about denying, let me just find it in here, denying the past's impact on the present. You know, we all have through our backgrounds things that didn't work fully in our the way we were parented, and we've grown up with unhealthy beliefs. Beliefs. Some of us have made vows, and we've lived and been driven out of that. I had some extended ministry for many hours in the summer, some prayer ministry, and uh, I discovered I'm completely messed up. A lot of who I am has come out of who I was and vulnerabilities that I've attempted in my own way to shore up and strengthen and, and make myself you know, acceptable and for people to look to me and admire me you know, because I feel very vulnerable, all those sorts of things. And you can't deny the past and its effect on the present. He says, the work of growing in Christ does not mean we don't go back to the past as we press ahead to what God has for us. It actually demands we go back in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent us from loving ourselves and others as God designed. Here's one some of you will relate to, and if you in uh, pretty much every person who's ever been employed by a church will relate to this, but it'll be much more wide-reaching than that. 
doing for God instead of being with God. Work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things, such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. When we work for God because of these things, our experience of the gospel often falls off center. We become human doings, not human beings. Our experiential sense of worth and validation gradually shifts from God's unconditional love for us in Christ to our works and performance. The joy of Christ gradually disappears. Our activity for God can only properly flow from a life with God. We cannot give what we do not possess. And one last thought from him, why don't we take appropriate care of ourselves? Why are so many Christians, along with the rest of our culture, frantic, exhausted, overloaded, and hurried? And if that describes you today, I would recommend strongly, this is my favorite book of the year, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Lastly, and very briefly, it's worth paying attention to the vocational area of our lives. Uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians tells us that we are all God's workmanship. We were created uh, to, by him to do good works, which he has created in advance for us to do. And we thrive best when we are doing those things that he has created us for and not doing the things he created someone else to do. With all the demands of life, I know that I will be most effective if I say yes to what I'm called by God to do. To sift out some good things, which I could do, in order to focus on what I am uniquely for. You know, I am the only one in the world who can be a good husband to Debbie, a father to my sons, and so on. That is part of my calling. And in my work and ministry life, I thrive best when I know what God has made me for and align my life to that. And again, I have someone to talk to about these things, a coach who is skilled at drawing that out of me and helping me see the wood for the trees. And my encouragement to you is to ask God to guide you in understanding what he had in mind when he created you. And find someone you can openly talk with who can give you a bit of objective perspective, you know, help you as you focus on those things. So as I finish, God wants us to know that he is interested in the whole of us, every part of our lives. He wants us to thrive in what he has called us to be and to do uh, and to experience life to the full. And my encouragement to you is to take something home from what you've heard today and not to just forget it, not to leave it as a good intention, but like Larry said to me, so what's stopping you putting that idea into practice to actually put feet on it this week and turn what may be a good idea into a reality?